how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Timothy and Titus, part one. Well, now we come to the last letters Paul ever wrote in his life. A little group of three letters which have been grouped together and called the pastoral epistles. I'm going to show you that's a dreadful title for them. It really is misleading. These three little letters are unlike his others in a number of ways, quite unlike his others. Not just that they're addressed to individuals, but uh, in their content, in their style, in their vocabulary, in so many ways, they're quite different. But all three are very like each other. So clearly they were written around the same time by the same person. But many Bible scholars have questioned whether they were written by Paul. And uh, this is a big debate that goes on in commentaries about these three letters. And I'm afraid there are many who would like to think they're not by Paul. And they have hidden motives in that desire. One of the main ones now is in the feminist area. There are things said about women in these epistles which people are kicking against pretty hard today. And uh, not against women, but about women, I should have said. And the feminists kick very hard against this. And if they could prove that these epistles were not from an apostle and not from Paul, that would be a major reason for not paying such attention to them. It's, it's in this uh, little group of letters that Paul forbids women to teach in mixed company in church. And that, of course, runs right against humanist thinking today and even church thinking. So there are built-in desires, I'm afraid, to prove that these are not apostolic letters. Well, first, I think we can explain the differences between these and his others by the fact that these are written much later than the others. One of the reasons used against the authorship of Paul is that they don't fit into his itinerary in Acts. And certainly they don't. He refers to his time in Crete. And in the book of Acts, he never is in Crete. And so they say it doesn't fit into his program. Well, the obvious answer to that, and the real answer is that these refer to that period of his ministry after he was released from his imprisonment in Rome. Of course, the book of Acts finishes just before his first trial. And we know from Philippians that he expected to be released. He was willing to be executed, but he did say, I expect that this trial will turn out right and I will be released for you. And he was, largely thanks to Dr. Luke's careful preparation of his brief. Now, after traveling again in Crete and other places, he was betrayed by Alexander and arrested again. And this time he knew he would not be released. And that is why the book of Acts stopped when it did. Luke continued to travel with him, and he could have gone on writing the story of Paul. But Paul said, Luke, there's no point in your writing anymore. I'm not going to get off. The Lord has told me that this time I've come to the end, so don't try and get me off, Luke. You'll be fighting God if you write another brief for me. That's why the book of Acts finishes where it does. Because it's not the story of the church, it's the story of Paul. 
and it was the brief for his first trial. And he was released, but afterwards when he was arrested the second time, and this time not under house arrest, but this time in the condemned cell, that's when he wrote these three letters. And that explains quite a lot of difference, that he's older, that he's now facing death, and somehow that uh, changes your thinking and that changes the way you talk. So I think the differences of style and content and even this matter of the itinerary not fitting can be well explained by his release and further travels during which he went to Crete and left Titus there, went back to Ephesus and left Timothy there. It all fits perfectly. So we'd, quite simply, I'm treating them as Paul's letters. Paul is older and he's facing death and also the churches are older and they also are facing death because a church can die as well. And the older you are as an individual or as a church, the more it's possible for you to die. And he's writing these letters to Timothy and Titus to save churches from dying because when churches get older and the next generation takes over, it's not always easy to pass on the same enthusiasm of faith to the next generation. And churches need to be kept alive and not just brought to life. Well now, I've said that the title, the Pastoral Epistles, is a bad title. It was coined in 1703. And whoever coined it, I think, did a grave disservice. And ever since, they've been known as the Pastoral Epistles. They are no more pastoral than any other letters of Paul. Every letter he wrote was pastoral in that it dealt with pastoral needs, pastoral problems. But the danger of calling them pastors is that they've been treated as a kind of handbook for pastors, as a kind of how to do it, how to organize your church. And certainly there are instructions as to the kind of elders and deacons you should have. But it's, as a manual for pastors, it's very inadequate. For example, it doesn't tell you how to choose elders or how to appoint them, whether you vote for them or whatever. There's very little in these letters in telling you how to organize your church. And to treat them as a handbook for pastors is really quite a big mistake. That's not why he was writing them. So I don't like the pastoral title, especially because it focuses on the church inside and its internal affairs, whereas really these letters focus on the church's external responsibility. The whole thrust of the letters is to get the church right in order for the world to be evangelized. And that's the ultimate objective in Paul's mind. If the churches are not right, the world isn't going to be saved. And Paul's heart is always for the world. And the church is only the means to an end to win the world. So I don't call them the pastorals anyway. You could call them evangelistic letters because ultimately that's their objective, that the character of the churches is ultimately the deciding factor in your evangelistic impact and the influence of the churches is his concern. That is why he says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. That's his heart. So we could call them the evangelistic epistles, but even that misleads us a little. I want to call them the apostolic letters because Timothy and Titus were apostolic delegates. Their first function 
from these letters is clearly not that of being pastors to the churches, nor of being evangelists to the world. Their first function is that he has sent them there as apostolic delegates. Now what do I mean by that? As Paul travelled as an apostle with his apostolic team planting churches, his follow-up took three forms. Either he went back and visited them to see how they were getting on, or he sent letters to them, or he sent one of the team back, or left one of the team there to finish the job off. Do you follow me? And Timothy and Titus were not sent as pastors or evangelists to Crete and Ephesus, for Titus was in Crete and Timothy was in Ephesus when these letters were sent from Rome. He had sent them there as apostolic delegates. He'd sent them there as troubleshooters to sort things out. And he'd only sent them there temporarily, and in both cases he said, you must do this as quickly as possible and then come and join me in Rome. So he's not appointing them as pastors, nor is he saying, stay there and be evangelists. He's saying, I've sent you there to finish the job off and then quickly come and join me in Rome. So they are only temporarily where they are, and they're there for a very specific function as troubleshooters. We're going to see what the troubles were, but in both cases he felt the way to deal with them was not to write a letter to the church, but actually to send a delegate to put things right. He'd already used both Timothy and Titus, do you remember, in Crete, in Corinth? And in that case, Timothy had failed to do what was needed, but Titus succeeded. There was a difference between those two, as we shall see, and when he writes to them, he has quite a different approach to the two of them. Timothy needs a lot of encouragement. He's a timid man, timid Timothy, and, but Titus is tough Titus, and, and you get the sense of that, what they need. Titus simply needs telling what to do. Timothy needs an awful lot of, you know, stir up the gift that is in you and, and uh, don't, don't be so timid. God has given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Pull yourself together, Timothy. Come on, you can do it. Titus, he knew he could do it anyway, so he just told him what to do. And you get this difference. But the interesting thing is Paul was more fond of Timothy than Titus. Paul said, Timothy, my dear son, and I just have a sneaky feeling that Timothy was the nearest Paul ever got to having a family of his own. There was a relationship with Timothy. It was special. And I think Paul would like to feel that Timothy would be his successor and take over from him. Different though they were in temperament and background and so much, Paul had a very special place in his heart for my dear son, my only true son, Timothy. Well now, apostolic delegates. Apostolic means pioneering and an apostle was always a temporary position. I mean by that he only stayed long enough to get the church on its feet and then he went off to do it again somewhere else. He didn't stay around and become its bishop. He went off and he went on planting other churches. See there are certain words about Christian ministry in the New Testament that are very different from each other. One is apostolos, which means a sent one who keeps moving and doing it again somewhere else. 
An episkopos, from which we get our word episcopal, episkopos is someone who is an overseer who stays in one place. And a diakonos is a servant, someone who looks after the practical side of the church. And again, he is stationary. So what happened was the apostolos planted the church and got it firmly rooted. But as soon as he could, he gave it episkopos and diakonos. Do you follow me? They're called elders and deacons, but episkopos and diakonos. Actually, there is another word, elder, presbyteros, from which we get the word presbyterian, but presbyteros and episkopos were interchangeable. They simply meant older, mature Christians who oversaw the work. One describes their character, one describes their function. The key is that all these ministries were always plural. There is no such thing as one-man ministry in the New Testament. There was an, a team of apostles, there was a team of elders, there was a team of deacons. In those days they had many bishops to one church, not many churches to one bishop. That's a complete reversal of the New Testament situation. There's always safety in plurality of ministry. There's always danger in one-man ministries. See? And there's safety in numbers. So, there is only one man in the New Testament who was ever an apostolos, an episkopos, and a diakonos altogether. One of the most famous men in the New Testament was all three, and I'll give a five-pound note to anybody who can tell me who he was. How about that? Shout names out. Only one person was all three. He's very well known in the New Testament. My money's safe. Come on, shout out. Jesus. No? 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 It's all right, my money's safe. No? I haven't really time. The name is Judas Iscariot. You wouldn't have guessed, would you? And if you read Acts 1 carefully, Peter said, we'll have to replace Judas. We'll have to find another apostle, another episcopos, another diakonos to replace him. So I don't think it's a good precedent for combining these ministries to you, because <laughs> he was treasurer as well. <laughs> that was his downfall. Normally these ministries are separate and different. An apostolos should plant a church, reach the point where it has episkopos and diakonos, and leave it. His work is done. So, for example, Paul says to Titus, I left you in Crete to finish the job by appointing episkoposes in every city. By appointing elders in every city. To finish the job. And then you can come and join me and we can send you somewhere else. That's a profound pattern. Unfortunately, ever since the first century AD, apostolos and episkopos have got confused. And we finished up with one bishop over many churches. And sometimes in freer churches calling himself an apostle. That is very different from the New Testament situation. So Timothy and Titus were part of an apostolic team that Paul, in Titus's case, left behind in Crete. And in Ephesus' case, he sent him back to Ephesus, in Timothy's case, sent him back to Ephesus. And they had a job to do to complete the apostolic work in those two places. 
and leave churches in both places that had a sound leadership and a sound membership. And in every case, Paul was not after quantity, but quality. He wanted quality leaders and quality members because he knew then they would bring in the quantity. Do you follow me? Paul didn't say, how big has the church got? He said, what's the quality of the leadership? And what's the quality of the membership? And if he had to, he sent Titus, he left Titus in Crete to see that the quality of the membership was right. But in Ephesus, it was the quality of the leadership that was not right. And that's the difference in the letters. Titus tells you about what kind of members an apostle should leave behind. But 1 and 2 Timothy talk about the kind of leadership that an apostle should leave behind. All right? Hope that's given you a key to some of the letters. We can look at it three ways. We can look at these letters from the point of view of the writer, which we'll now do. Then from the point of view of the readers, Titus and Timothy. And finally, we'll look at the situations in Crete and Ephesus that needed this guidance to the apostolic delegates. So let's look at Paul. And you know the amazing thing is, how people can say these letters are not from Paul, I don't know. You can construct the whole of Paul's life from these letters. There is more personal information about Paul in these letters than any other letters. So how can they say they're not from Paul? They're accusing whoever did write them of being a liar. That's a difficult thing to say about part of the scriptures of God. You can find the whole pattern of his life there. He talks about the past changes in his life. Here he, he still, as an old man, says, I persecuted the church of God. It's still on his conscience that he was the wrong side of Christ. And that's when he calls himself the chief of sinners. Well, actually, he doesn't say the chief of sinners. That's a bad translation. He says, I was the worst of sinners. Chief sounds a bit, you know, I was the worst of sinners. I persecuted Christians. Never forgot that. Listen, when God forgives you, he forgets what you did, but you never will. That's why you can't forgive yourself. Only God can forgive and forget because he can control his memory. But we remember. It's part of the tragedy. We remember. Paul never forgot that, the worst of sinners. But he said, I was apprehended and became a slave of Christ. He bought me. Well, I've gone through that already. But the pattern of his life is very clear. His present circumstances are also very clear. He has been released from prison. He has visited a lot of places. He's been back to Corinth, Miletus, Troas, Crete. He's even been to Spain. And in fact, in this letter, he does say his first trial went well. But he doesn't expect his second to. So it's all there. He was released. He did go west and east, but now he's in prison again. And this time it's not house arrest. This time he's in the condemned cell. And he has this feeling, I was betrayed by Alexander the metal worker. Now, we don't know how that betrayal took place, but it clearly, it, it was there in Paul's spirit. I was betrayed. And he was arrested in such a hurry, as we said, that he left his overcoat and his notebooks behind. And in one of the letters to Timothy, he says, do your best to come quickly. And 
and bring the notebooks and bring my overcoat for the winter, maybe some time in this cold cell. The very human touches here, an old man facing death. But his future prospects are there and his future prospects are he's finished the fight. He's fought the fight, he's finished the course and he's kept the faith. That's amazing. I kept the faith and therefore there's a crown of life waiting for me. See? Do you know Christianity is a way of death as, a way of, as well as a way of life? There was a Christian man in Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire when the doctor gave him a few weeks to live. He wrote to all his relatives and said, come and stay with me, come and see how a Christian dies. What an invitation. And here we've got in 2 Timothy, Paul's last will and testament, the last thing he ever wrote. And uh, that's important what a man says before he dies. You see, now Nero's temper was very uncertain. It couldn't be relied on to be just and fair. And Paul knew he'd not get a fair trial now. He was beheaded by the city gate. You can go there. I've been and stood at that gate at the very spot where Paul's head was chopped off. And the great life came to an end. It was time, time for him to hand the baton on to someone else to pass on the relay to someone else. And Timothy was the one he wanted to do it to. So there's a kind of passing it on to Timothy. Now, Timothy, I've come to the end, but you're still young and you've got to carry on with this work. It's a very moving letter. So his future prospects are grim, humanly speaking, but very good, spiritually speaking. Well, now, we not only have the pattern of his life very clearly in these letters, but we have the purpose of his life. And once again, I've been through this with you so much that uh, already we don't need to go through in detail. But he lived for the gospel, and the gospel had this objective side and this subjective, subjective side. It's so important to hold the two together. Do you remember the letter to the Ephesians? First half was this, second half was this. But it's slightly different here. Paul was nothing if not Trinitarian. He's constantly talking about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. But God always gets the preeminence of the three. We sometimes forget that. Though he lived in Christ and for Christ, God was the ultimate person for him. And here there are very many wonderful titles given to God. It's interesting that Paul constantly called God the Saviour. I wonder when you last did. See, so many people think that Jesus saved us from God, you know, and somehow Jesus saved us from God's wrath. That's true, but it was God who thought of it. And it is God who is our Saviour. God is a saving God, and He sent Jesus to save us. But He is also the King. And it's very important that we remember that the major thrust of the Bible is that God is King. You have to read quite a long way through the Bible before you find God is Father. You have to read almost to the end of the Bible before you find the statement, God is love. But all the way through the Bible, from beginning to end, God is King and His dominion is from sea to sea and His throne is for everlasting. And God is Saviour and King. 
Those are the two major thrusts in these letters. But he talks about Jesus and he gives him the title Savior as well. And he calls Jesus the judge. Now that's interesting. You'd have thought he'd have called God the judge and Jesus the Savior. In fact, God is the Savior and Jesus is the judge. Because God isn't going to judge us on the judgment day. God won't be on the great white throne when we face judgment. God has delegated that to a man and we shall be judged by Jesus Christ. He is coming again to judge the quick and the dead. And it's Jesus who will judge the destiny of every human being. One day Muhammad will stand before Jesus to be judged and Buddha will stand before Jesus to be judged and Confucius will stand before Jesus to be judged and you will stand before Jesus to be judged and I will. That's the truth of it. And it's Jesus who is the judge of the human race. It's he who will separate the sheep from the goats. That should both encourage and dismay us. Encourages us that there's a human being going to judge us, someone who understands us, but it's someone who sees right through us and knows everything about us. Talks about the Holy Spirit and mentions two aspects of the Holy Spirit. First, the gift of the Spirit being experienced. He says, Timothy, don't you remember when you received the gift of the Spirit, when we laid hands on you? And then he talks about the exercise of the spiritual gifts. Stir them up, Timothy. Keep them going. It's so easy to neglect your spiritual gifts. Keep them going. Stir them up. Use them. And so I'm just running through. That's the objective side, what we call the divine indicative. This is what God has done for us and will do for us. The subjective side is rather different. For Paul there were three dimensions to our side of salvation. I've mentioned two of them already. There is the experiential side, the experience of coming to Christ, of being justified and forgiven, of being born again. The ethical side the present aspect of salvation whereby we are sanctified, becoming morally clean and holy. And there's the future, the eschatological aspect of salvation. And it's interesting that Paul used the word saved, the verb, in three different tenses. We have been saved, we are being saved and we will be saved. And none of us is fully saved yet. We are on the way of salvation. We're traveling a road called the way. And I'm worried when somebody says we had seven people saved on Sunday night. And I say, what you mean is you had seven people who began to be saved on Sunday night. They're not completely saved yet. It's so easy to think salvation's over. You know, it isn't. There's still a future aspect that we're waiting for and there's a present aspect that's being worked through. I think at that point I'm going to uh, look at this and see it a little more fully here. I'm not quite sure how I got this as well as that, but it's, it's my fault, not the person who wrote these. This is the same thing. But let's just expand on this subjective side. There's a divine indicative which says God has done this for you, and there's a human imperative, now you must do this with the salvation he's done, he's given you. Work it out, for he's worked it in. The indicative is God has worked it in, but the imperative is now you must work it out. 
But let's just run through this. Justification, sanctification and glorification together make up salvation. And so we're only partly saved now. And this phrase, once saved, well, once saved, we can say when we've got to the end of the process, when our salvation is complete, as we sing in Charles Wesley's hymns, perfectly restored in thee. That's when your salvation is complete. When every bit of you... My wife's got great faith, but there's one thing that stretches her faith to the limit, to the very cliff edge. I've told her one day her husband will be perfect. <laughs> and she can believe most things I preach, but when I say that, she has a struggle with faith. But it's true. God hasn't finished with me yet. And he wants to continue the good work he started in me until that day. That's his objective, to be totally saved. I rarely use the word salvation today. I use the word recycled. If somebody asks me what job I'm in, well, I'm in the recycling business. And, oh boy, they look at me, you know, that's great. What do you recycle? Paper? Metal? No, people. Because <laughs> the real cause of pollution in the earth is people. And it's people who need to be recycled. And you're not recycled until you're perfectly restored for the original purpose for which you were made. As recycled paper can be used again. And you see, hell is a rubbish dump where people who are no use to God are thrown away. That's why he used the picture of Gehenna, the rubbish dump outside Jerusalem, for hell. And what my job is to, to save people from the rubbish dump and recycle them for God. Like Onesimus. <laughs> See, so that's what it is. You're not saved until you're totally recycled and made again what God meant you to be. So salvation is a process. Now, Titus 3.5 is a favorite text of mine which I've never heard preached. Titus 3.5 is that God has saved us through water baptism and spirit baptism. Very similar to John 3.5. We are born again out of water and spirit. Now again, if you read my book, Normal Christian Birth, where is it? Um, I really have shown how Paul saw water baptism and spirit baptism as essential to salvation. But if I translate that and say, as essential to being recycled, then you understand it better. Do you see? It's only because we've thought of saved as getting your ticket to heaven that we get into that false thinking that those two baptisms are not essential to salvation. But once you see salvation as a recycling process, those two things are part of the process. They become an essential part. And so Paul says he has saved us through the bath of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit which he poured out upon us generously. And that's very interesting. The recycling starts in your baptism. And it continues as you're bathed in the Holy Spirit. In fact, usually recycling starts with rewashing, with a washing process. But he emphasizes those two. That that's when it begins. That's when your justification begins. That's all part of the beginning. Then sanctification has both a negative and a positive aspect. The negative is to be separated from evil. The positive is to be set apart for good. 
Sanctified doesn't just mean separated from evil. It means set apart to be used by God. A sanctified vessel in the temple was not just a clean vessel, it was one that God could use. And sanctification isn't a sort of passive thing, it's a very active thing, it's to be clean enough for God to use. And that takes time. And then the glorification. The need for perseverance is very strong in these letters. Paul talks very sadly about those who've shipwrecked their faith, those who've denied their faith, those who've gone back into the world. And it's very serious, because this is not an automatic process. It continues as long as you continue trusting and believing in the Lord. There's no automatic that having started it will be completed. And that's where Paul quotes one of these faithful sayings. From time to time in these letters he quotes a faithful saying, a trustworthy saying. And he's quoting little proverbs, if you like, that were circulating in the churches. And here is the one he quotes. He says, if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And then it comes. But if we deny or disown him, he will deny or disown us. And he's there quoting Jesus, of course. Jesus said that, if you deny me before men, I deny you before my Father. There is a real need for perseverance in these letters, an emphasis on persevere, continue, endure. You underline those words in these letters. Timothy, persevere, keep going, continue. He said, if you do continue in the faith, you will save yourself and your hearers. Now take that seriously. If you continue, if you persevere, watch your life and your doctrine closely. For if you persevere in them, you will save yourself and your hearers. He's talking now about the future salvation, the completion of it all, that glorious future that God has prepared for us. Persevere in your life and doctrine. Keep them close to Christ and you'll save yourself and others. We're to watch these things. Well now, let's... I think we've just about finished, have we there? How much time have I got? Another five minutes, maybe. Yes, another five minutes. Then let me just look very quickly at Timothy and Titus. We're now looking at... Um, I think we need to go back. What different people these two apostles were. Titus was a Gentile, uncircumcised. Timothy had a Jewish mother and a Jewish grandmother who taught him the scriptures from a little child, had a godly background, whereas Titus had a pagan background. Timothy was not circumcised because his dad wasn't a Jew, but uh, later Paul did circumcise him, not because he thought circumcision did anything for, for Timothy, but he said, it'll help you to go with me into the synagogue. And for that, Timothy was willing as an adult to be circumcised, which is not a very easy thing for an adult to go through, but Timothy was doing that so that he could join Paul 
in preaching in synagogues. That was the only reason he was circumcised. But as far as temperament goes, they were just totally different. Timothy had been born in Lystra, one of the first towns that Paul had evangelized in Galatia. And the, the fellowship in Lystra later got in touch with Paul, and they said, Paul, we've got a young man who's very promising, and we think if you take him on and let him travel with you, he'd make a good understudy. It was the church that actually recommended. And from then on, Timothy traveled with Paul, and their relationship never faltered. Jewish mother, Gentile father, mother and grandmother, both godly to the God of the Jews. And Timothy was set apart by prophecy, and he had three special assignments even before this. We know that he was sent to Thessalonica, to Corinth, and to Philippi as Paul's delegate. And we know that he collaborated in writing at least six letters of Paul. He collaborated in the letters to Thessalonians, the two to Corinthians, and the letter to Philippians, and the one to Philemon. So he'd really shared in Paul's ministry all that time. But he was sickly. He had this recurring stomach trouble. I told you that Paul meant him to rub the wine in, but he was told to take a little wine for his stomach's sake. And he was a man who needed a lot of support. And so to Timothy, Paul said, Timothy, you've got to be a soldier, an athlete. You've got to discipline yourself, Timothy. Make a man of yourself. And that's why when Paul came to the end, he realized that Timothy was going to feel it probably more than anybody else. Timothy was the closest Paul got to having a son. And they had that father-son relationship. And that's why he said, Timothy, sort out the problems in Ephesus as quickly as you can, and then please come and join me. I'd like to spend the last few weeks with you. We don't know if Timothy managed to get there before Paul was executed. We don't know. But you can see Paul's longing in this letter. I've got to leave you in Ephesus. You've got to sort that out. But Timothy, please, get here before the winter if you can. Now, when you read the letter to Titus, there's none of that sort of personal link. Titus, what we know about him, is good. He was an excellent worker, and he did the job well. Paul had total confidence in him. He was a tough Gentile. He's not mentioned in the book of Acts. There is no exhortation to Titus. Peter, uh, Paul doesn't urge Titus, pull your socks up, or, you know, be bold. Don't, don't be frightened of the people. He hadn't got to say that to Titus. All he had to say to Titus was, tell them to do this, tell them to be that. Quite a different approach. So we have these two different letters which say an awful lot about Paul. Reading between the lines, they say quite a bit about Titus and about Timothy and Paul's relationship with them. But the important thing in both letters, which we'll look at in the next study, is what was going on in Crete, what was going on in Ephesus that kept Titus and Timothy away from Paul when he needed them most at the end of his life. What was happening? For Paul, even though he longed for them both to be with him at the end, his heart was for the churches. And he was saying, if the churches need you more than I do, you've got to stay there. But try and come as quickly as possible. Well, we'll look at the content of the letters next time.
You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.